Good morning. So who, uh, did anybody decide to do the homework from last week? It was read like 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15 through 2 Samuel chapter 1. We have one. Okay, excellent. Two. All right, good. Um, I'll call on you later. So this morning we're going to examine the lives of two men who were anointed as the first two kings of ancient Israel. The first was named Saul, a man who started off well, but ultimately wanted to have a good reputation and run things his own way, so God rejected him as king. The second is David, a meek young man who also started off well, also had no reputation and no sort of reason to be king at first. and who for some reason, even though he was anointed king early in Saul's reign, never took matters into his own hands like Saul quickly did. We're going to contrast the two, and we're going to see how and why David became king, and our goal is to see what was in David's heart, and why he spent the years under Saul's oppression without uh, assassinating Saul, which, like anybody else, would have done, given the circumstances. Let's jump right into the middle of Saul's reign. Actually, let's pray. Let's pray. Well, O Lord, in the wonders of the mysteries of God, you yourself became lowly and became a man. And while we will never understand that, we will spend our whole lives wondering at it. So thank you for giving us this uh, scripture that we'll examine today. Please help us to understand it and to understand what's in your heart, as David seems to have been so good at doing, even though his life was so hard. We pray that we might be like David and that we might be like your son. And we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and that we would become more lowly and more meek and not think very highly of ourselves more and more, but that we, like David, would think more and more highly of you as time goes on and that we would just sort of forget about ourselves. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So let's jump right into the middle of King Saul's reign. We'll start at the turning point where he first rejects God and rebels against God's command. Okay, so the country of Israel, the little country of Israel, and the nearby little country of Philistia, if you know history, they're like a super warlike people and, you know, they were greatly feared for good reason. Israel and Philistia are at war. Now, the prophet Samuel, who's you might think of as like the bishop of Israel, figuratively speaking, he's like, you could think of him figuratively as like the head pastor or something. Um, So he's the the high priest of Israel. The prophet Samuel tells Saul to wait seven days for him to come so he can offer sacrifices to God and pray for Saul before the impending battle begins. The Philistines are there, ready to fight. The Israelites are there, 
shaking in their boots, but otherwise ready to fight. But where is Samuel? Seven days have passed, the time that Samuel sat, and now he's a day late, or rather probably a few hours late. Saul does not wait for Samuel as Samuel instructed. He offers the sacrifice himself in front of all the people and sort of assumes the role, not just the role of king given to him by God, but the role of spiritual leader of the people, a role not given to him by God. He offers the sacrifice himself. His sin was that he offered sacrifices on his own authority, usurping the priest's God-assigned role of offering the sacrifices. Saul took matters into his own hands because he was afraid and antsy. Every one of us would have been very afraid if we were in Saul's position. As soon as he had finished offering the sacrifices, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel arrives and says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We don't find out who that is for a few more chapters. God is doing something, but he's doing it slowly and carefully. Somewhere out there in the hills of Israel, is a kid who is filled with trust in God. The young David was later to write in Psalm 22, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. This is a song he wrote to God. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. This was a kid who, without yet knowing his name or anything about him, God was already working in his life, and he already loved the scriptures. As it says in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And in the way of your testimonies, he's talking about the Bible, so this is how much of the Bible, here's the whole Bible, this is how much of the Bible um, David would have uh, had to read so far, maybe, maybe about that much or so, right? So what was written so far, um, and he would have been taught that um, by the local teacher of uh, the Jewish scriptures and by his parents, probably his mother. And he wrote, in the way of your testimonies, that means the scripture or the testimony about God. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
these words in Psalm 119 capture what kind of kid David was beginning to grow up to be. But we don't yet know his name. This yet unnamed kid who is going to replace Saul is out there in the fields meditating on what he had learned in the scripture that week or that month. Well, Saul's next mistake comes when God commands him to carry out his righteous vengeance on a group of people called the Amalekites. Who's heard of the Amalekites? We see them a number of times through Scripture, and it's supposed to be a theme or a storyline um, from Exodus through Esther. Who were they? Well, as recorded in Exodus chapter 17, about a few hundred years before where we're uh, studying Samuel and David, or Saul and David's life, the people of Israel had just been released from slavery in Egypt, and they were being led by God through the wilderness. And as the people grumbled about being thirsty, God makes water to come out from a large rock, and there's enough for all the people to drink, them, they and all their livestock. It was at that time that a country called Amalek, Amalek came out to attack the Israelites. Unprovoked, they came out to attack the helpless people of God. It took God performing a miracle for the people of Israel to not be destroyed. They win this battle with Amalek with supernatural help from God. And God tells Moses, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That's the guy God was raising up after Moses. Recite this in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So you've got this people group, this, um, I guess, little country called Amalek, and they're probably pretty warlike and aggressive. They go out and attack the God's people, God's fledgling people in their kind of helpless state out there in the wilderness. I, they have some weapons to fight with, but, but they're no match for Amalek. Um, the country, the culture, the people of the Amalekites were, had, like the rest of the Canaanites, grown so wicked and so in love with the idols of, uh, of the Canaanites and their ways and their sexual immorality and grotesque uh, practices that about 300 years later now, the cup of their sin is filled up and they're going to drink the wrath of God. God is righteous in his judgments, and he is the only one who is righteous in his judgments. And he has determined, like countless other civilizations, to bring down this civilization at this time, the Amalekites. But we're going to see them again throughout the Bible several more times. So about a few hundred years pass. And that brings us back to the reign of the young King Saul. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17. Um, verses, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see that God has commanded Saul, take the people, go up against the Amalekites, and utterly destroy them. It, it was God saying, I'm not going to be patient for any more hundreds of years with like your grotesque like murders and idolatry and stuff. And interestingly, God was sending his people, and not like lightning bolts or fiery sulfur from heaven, God sent his people to attack and wipe out the civilization. An unpleasant job, um, but God was righteous in his judgments, and he commanded Saul to do it. Saul goes, and he um, wipes out most of the Amalekites, and he was supposed to put everything to the sword and, and burn the rubble and not take any spoil for himself at all. He wasn't supposed to touch these things that were devoted to destruction and devoted to the Lord, but he did. He saved the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of anything that delighted his eyes, and he saved the king of the Amalekites as a prize of, warrior, of war, probably a tribute to his own honor and greatness in battle. In chapter 15, verse 17, Samuel said to Saul, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, listen to the deception in his voice. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. <laughs> and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so now we hear Saul's weak apology. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So what's in Saul's heart here? Holler it out. Pride. His own glory and honor. Pride. What did Nebuchadnezzar say later in the book of Daniel, which, by the way, your homework for the month of March is to read the book of Daniel as many times as you can? What did Nebuchadnezzar later say in his heart right before the Lord struck him and made him like an animal? Well, he observed his kingdom and said, wow, look at what I've accomplished. He observed his kingdom and said, look at what I've accomplished. How does it go? Isn't this Babylon the great that I have built with my hands for my own glory and the glory of my kingdom or the splendor of my name or something? So that that sounds a lot alike. Um, that, That sounds like what's in... Saul's heart here. Saul really doesn't care about what God says. It doesn't matter what Saul says. It doesn't matter what Saul thinks. Saul doesn't care about what God says. Saul only cares about looking good in public, having a reputation, holding on to this kingship. We're going to see this this theme be developed of All he's going to care about by the end of his life is that his name becomes a great name and that through his son, although he doesn't care that much about his own son, he wants his son to be king after him so that his name and his dynasty will endure forever. That's his dream. That's what's in Saul's heart. We saw Saul grab Samuel's uh, robe and it tore. Watch, a few chapters later here, we're going to see the tearing of another robe. But this next time, it's going to be Saul's robe. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This account about Saul is an example for us of how easily we likewise can become deceived to think we're following God when we're in such rebellion against him that God compares us to a witch. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. If you grew up reading the NIV, I believe it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So Saul's disobedience, his desire for honor and riches at the expense of carrying out God's plan, so... God had righteous anger, and God, in his righteousness, said, enough of this evil on my planet. I'm going to put it to a stop now. I've been patient for hundreds of years. There's nothing wrong with God's plan to wipe out this whole civilization. It was wise. It was good. It was awful, but it was right, and it was time. In this case, God's plan to bring wrath on a guilty culture whose cup of sin was now all filled up, Saul's exaltation of himself 
and rebellion against God in this way was really the same as if he'd started praying to demons and consulting his Ouija board to make decisions. And in fact, this reference to witchcraft is a foreshadowing of Saul's death years later. He actually does practice witchcraft. But again, there's really no difference between practicing witchcraft and his rebellion against God's command through the prophet Samuel in this chapter. We ourselves may go through times in our life when we reach something like this level of deception. So God have mercy on us and bring us out of it. A few key things happen in the next chapters. God tells Samuel that he has provided for himself a king among the sons of Jesse, who is some guy from a town called Bethlehem. Samuel goes in secret at God's command and, in the traditional way of identifying kings, pours oil on the head of this young man named David, who is a shepherd and not exactly his dad's favorite. His dad treated him like the son that didn't count. He actually didn't bring him out to meet when Samuel came to meet him. He left him in the fields doing the chores, taking care of the animals. Great childhood. And like when Saul was anointed a few chapters earlier, the Holy Spirit rushes on David from that day forward. But now, the Holy Spirit has departed from Saul. And instead, God sends a harmful spirit to torment Saul. God can do that. God can do that. Ironically, Saul hears about David's skill as a harpist, and Saul summons David into his service as his personal musician. So now, David is in the palace of the king. David plays the harp for him right there in Saul's royal house, and temporarily, the harmful spirit leaves Saul. This happens many times. David is so filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, David is now bivocational. He goes back and forth between taking care of his father's sheep and serving King Saul in the palace. Still at war with Philistia, the Israelites go out again and line up for battle with the Philistines. And David, filled with the Holy Spirit, kills a Philistine giant named Goliath, who is like over nine feet tall. And the Bible takes some time to describe Goliath's greatness by describing how heavy his armor was and how heavy his weapons were. I think the, the metal head of the shaft of uh, the, the spear tip um, on his spear was like 14 or 15 pounds or something. So if I had any weapon that weighed like 15 pounds, I'd be like, he's slinging, it'd be like using a sledgehammer, but like a good, big, beefy one. And, and he's supposed to be quick with it. And he was, right? And then it tells how heavy his armor is, and it's like 100 pounds or something, plus or minus, like just for his armor. If I were carrying somebody on my back 100 pounds, I'd be, you know, moving around pretty slow. Well, Saul, or Goliath, is like this nimble, quick, professional warrior. 
David kills him under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And he kills him by slinging a rock at him, right? Hits him in the forehead, knocks him down. He draws out the guy's own sword, chops off his head, and the Philistines freak and they're routed. And Israel mops them up all the way back to their cities, miles and miles and miles away. If you just came in, good morning. Um, so Saul is really impressed with David. He makes him commander of the army of Israel. God supernaturally helps David to both stay alive in battle and to continue to rout his enemies in battle in subsequent battle after battle over a period of time. But Saul's pleasure with David quickly turns to jealousy when the people begin singing victory songs to the tune of, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul begins to fear David. Saul contemplates murdering David, but then devises a plan for him to die in battle, which never happens. God instead gives David greater success in battle. Saul offers his older daughter to David in marriage. And here, David speaks. And we begin to see the difference between what's in David's heart and what's in Saul's heart. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 18, And David said to Saul, Who am I? Okay, let's answer that question. Who is David? David is the, the supernaturally successful brilliant military commander, and he's the commander of the army of the entire country. Like, he's a supernatural warrior. Like, if you've seen a movie about some kind of ancient half-god, half-man, we're starting to get into the territory of, of David's reputation and ability. Like, everybody in the country loves him. Back up. Saul offers uh, David the hand of his oldest daughter in marriage. And David says, who am I? And who are my relatives? Like, he's not a nobleman. And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? He's floored. He's shocked. He's surprised that Saul would even think about kind of bringing him into the nobility. Like, what he has already, to him, is way more than he ever needed. And he doesn't even seem to think of it as his own. So Saul doesn't go through with it. At the last minute, he instead gives his daughter to another man. I want you to think about the disappointment. Unless you have been through that, you can't hardly imagine it. This is crushing. Saul then schemes that he will offer David his younger daughter in marriage if David goes out and kills a hundred Philistine warriors, like by himself. Saul is hoping to get David killed, of course. But David kills 200 Philistines and comes back with the proof. He gives David his daughter, but this won't last long. Saul has figured out that David is going to be king after him. But Saul wants his son Jonathan to be king after him. Well, that's a problem too, because Jonathan and David 
have become best friends and sworn a covenant of peace with each other. In the following chapters, Saul twice attempts to murder David, not by the hand of the Philistines, but with his own spear. And then he even attempts to kill his own son, Jonathan, for siding with David. At this point, David flees from the palace for good, knowing that Saul is determined to harm him and will not change his mind. For most of the rest of Saul's life, he hunts David like an animal with his best soldiers so that Saul's son will become king and Saul's dynasty and reputation will become great and David will be dead and out of the way. Saul gets worse and worse. His um, notable life uh, achievements go from things like building a giant monument to himself as opposed to like an altar to God saying thank you for supernaturally helping us or or letting us live through that battle, Um, to uh, when he finds out that there's this priest who, without knowing that Saul has this bitterness, jealousy, uh, grudge, and hatred against David, uh, helps David by giving him some bread and a sword when he's on the run. Saul finds out that this guy who's a priest did that to help David, didn't even know about the situation between Saul and David. He thought everything was fine. David didn't say, Saul's chasing me. He said, I'm in a hurry. Um, I'm, Saul's business is urgent. I, do you have any bread? Do you have a weapon? Saul finds out about it, and he calls the priest. But he also um, subpoenas or, or summons the priest's entire family, all his siblings, parents, and he has them all come, And they show up, and Saul interrogates him briefly and then determines that what he has done by giving Saul some loaves of bread and a sword deserves the death penalty and is some kind of high treason. And Saul commands his men to kill the priest. His men won't do it. But there's this foreigner here next to him, and he's like, you do it. And he does. And he kills the priest and he kills his entire family. This would be a little bit like if the US president, um, on a personal grudge, um, burst into like, some kind of big pastor's convention where there were a, a whole bunch of pastors and their families, and, and he killed them all. Every man, woman, and child. Saul actually sent forces out to the town where the priest was from and had everything, everything, even the animals killed. How come he didn't do that to the Amalekites whom God had judged? Now Saul is in the place of judge. First he was the king, then he's like, well, I'm going to be the priest too, and now he's the judge too. Hmm. So he's kind of in the place of Satan, exalting himself to being the boss of everything, right? And so these things happened as examples, as patterns, and were written down as examples for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has, had, uh, has come, so that we might not desire sin as they did. We also have been and will be tested with the same kinds of temptation with which Saul was tested. 
These were also written down as examples for us that we might have hope. So this brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because, what? Because he had just assassinated the king? Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is like the smallest possible example of David taking matters into his own hands or getting even or getting some ammunition under his belt so that he can prove to Saul, look, I'm, I'm better than you or, or I'm really innocent or something. Like, that was like the least thing he possibly could have done wrong in terms of rising up against Saul. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. He's talking about Saul. Saul is this horrible, tyrant, like disturbingly bad guy. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Well, Saul had already put out his hand against David in various ways more than once. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. These guys have been running for their lives with David. They've been hunted too. They all would have been slaughtered with David if they had been caught. And somehow, in faith, they side with David and are persuaded by his words. That's supernatural. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This all happened in a matter of minutes. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. How come it doesn't say David flipped him off and held up the corner of his robe and is like, you were a dead man and I spared you? That wasn't even in his heart. Like, not, how come? What was David's secret? What's with this guy? David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. By the way, somewhere about this time, God had taken his youngest daughter, or Saul had taken his youngest daughter, who he had given to David in marriage, and, and married her off to somebody different instead. Oh, that's like strike two. Okay? Like, the personal wounds that Saul had committed against David had, we're, we're talking like atrocities, like the worst things people ever do to other people, right? And 
David said to Saul, oh, and David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David publicly gave this guy the respect that somebody God has raised up deserves. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This has incredible implication for our society and our churches. See, my father, well, about this time he's lost his bride, so I guess he's sort of his ex-father-in-law. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And Saul leaves and he seems to have some repentance in his heart. Then Saul went home, but David and his men go up to the stronghold. Doesn't sound like he thinks uh, Saul's really permanently changed his mind. Good judgment call. That takes us to chapter 26. Um, David's been going from wilderness to forest to hills to caves and holes in the ground with his men. And then he's out in the wilderness of uh, Ziph, this place in Israel. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, isn't David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel, same as before, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. These are 3,000 commandos, rangers, seals. These are the best of the best, right? These are the chosen men of all of Israel out of maybe hundreds of thousands of men. And Saul's sleeping. It's night. And around him, like next to him, is this incredibly valiant man named Abner. He's a beast. He's the commander of the whole army. And around them are all of the best of the best Delta Force, and they're all sleeping around him. David gets a really good idea. <laughs> David had a few 
you know, band of the bone guys with him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, by the way, the, the brothers Joab and Abishai were known for a sort of craziness in, like, crazy courage. And I don't know if uh, Abishai had the faith that David had, but he certainly had crazy courage. David says to them, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? <laughs> and Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. Back up. They had to, like, tiptoe over a lot of guys to get to him. And there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. I guess they're having this conversation like in the middle of these like elite commandos. God had supernaturally made them stay asleep. It's going to tell us that. So they settle that uh, that conversation, and they take the spear, and they take Saul's jug of water, which was at his head, and they go off to this place, um, and they call to Saul, and, or, or rather, they call, David calls out to Abner, and he's like, aren't you a man? Like, why, didn't then, why then didn't you defend your Lord? You know, and, and, he re, and Saul recognizes his voice, and he's like, is that you, David, my son? <laughs> Saul really flip-flops, he still, it's like he's so deceived still that he has the, the audacity to call David his son, ex-son-in-law, like times two. <laughs> Saul is a really deceived guy. He, he probably really felt like he was vindicated and doing something right when he killed that entire village of, of the priests with their families, and like every kitty and doggy in the whole town. Like, Saul, is, Saul doesn't probably think he's that wicked still. He, he still has this mind that what he wants, his own glory and majesty, is really the right thing, and he deserves it. And David will have none of that. In 1 Samuel 26, we see this conversation between uh, uh, David and Saul. And, you know, he says basically the same thing as, uh, as when he cuts off the corner of his robe. And Saul um, relents of persecuting him. It's incredible the level of something that's in David's heart that he won't assassinate or or get back at, or usurp Saul at all. And there's no, there's no vengeance, there's no selfish ambition in his heart. What is it in David's heart that he refused to even speak against the Lord's anointed? What is it? I'm going to call on Sidney or Nathan.
who have been studying this this week. Simply put, he has the fear of God in his heart. He understands spiritual authority. Nathan, what else were you going to say? That. He submits to the spiritual authority. So David, David's secret is that he has this idea that God can and will do whatever he pleases, that God is right in such a way that no matter what I think, God's still right. And I just have to understand God's heart enough to know God's ways and God's commandments and and what he says. And it's enough for me that God had anointed Saul, like specially sent Samuel actually to anoint Saul king over Israel, and that God hadn't clearly indicated that he'd changed his mind. He'd, He'd anointed David king, but he hadn't made David king. And David wasn't about to make himself the boss. To him, God was the boss, and Saul was the boss. And until the boss's boss said, I've demoted my boss and you're promoted at this time for real, um, David was content knowing that God's promise was there, God's promise to anoint David, although sometimes he flirted with the idea of, well, maybe I'll die and that won't happen. Um, There was something in David's heart that was so quiet and so yielded to God and okay with what God was doing in God's judgments that he was willing to live in a hole in the ground and have no reputation at all which he'd actually tasted of all of that. So it wasn't that he'd never had like this wonderful life with where he kind of had everything and where literally everybody in the country loved him. He was the most famous guy in the whole country. So he actually had that, and then he lost it all. And he said he, he had enough trust in God that he assumed that God is sovereign. That means God is king. God is sovereign. So God is the real king. And he's king in such a way that he's actually in control of it all, no matter how bad it looks to me now. He assumed that God really was doing something good, that God wasn't done with him, and that God is able to bring out of this something better, even though he couldn't even see a glimpse of it. David's secret is found in the words he penned in Psalm 131. I'm going to turn there. It's a little psalm that uh, David wrote that was sung for generations to come as the people of God ascended into the mountains of Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. Psalm 131. A song of ascents, you know, because they're climbing up into the mountains, of David. O Lord, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. 
Another couple of David's psalms that he wrote um, echoed that refrain, you know, hope in the Lord. Oh, my soul, trust in the Lord. He constantly had to remind himself as he meditated on Genesis, on Exodus, on Deuteronomy, that God's ways are good. He's doing something good. If the people, if my ancestors in Egypt for over 400 years in slavery, a very bitter slavery, um, if out of that God was able to do something good and really good that exalted God, and we got through it, most of us, um, and, and God was vindicated after all that, what was in David's heart was that that satisfied him. That made him really feel good. That gave him peace and calm. And his heart was, I don't deserve, I didn't earn, this isn't, I'm, I don't need to get what's coming to me, you know, like Lucy and Peanuts. I just want what's coming to me. David's heart was, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't even occupy, I don't even think about things too great and too marvelous for me. He didn't have what in the nursing profession we call dreams of grandiosity and grandiose thoughts. Like, I, I have met a number of people um, in uh, specialized care settings, uh, psychiatric units, who I introduced myself, and they introduced themselves as Jesus Christ or as God. There's a kind of craziness, a kind of insanity that comes with thinking more highly of ourselves than, with, than we ought. And Saul started out well. He was a no-name guy like David. He was from a family that wasn't noble. Uh, he wasn't even from like one of the best tribes. Um, and he started out, they were going to anoint him as king in this public ceremony. And Saul's first act as about to be king is he didn't show up. He was hiding. You know, all the country had come out. And of course, you know, they've got some backpacks and some baggage with them. And uh, Saul was there hiding among the baggage. He started out pretty lowly. That's good. Some of us start out pretty lowly. That's good. If we get deceived like Saul did, we will go insane. We will believe lies. We will believe we're serving God when we're basically doing witchcraft, which if you think about it is like operating your Ouija board to make decisions or, or praying like, you know, to some demon, praying to your idols, praying to Satan. Like, Saul actually did practice Satanism, and we don't have time to go into it, but in the last, uh, in the last chapters of 1 Samuel, um, you know, uh, the, pro the priest Samuel has died, and it's time to go to war with the Philistines again. David still isn't king. Years have passed. Years have passed. And David's heart is still Psalm 131. And David is still taking his complaints to God and waiting and thanking God. He's thanking God in the midst of this. What humility. And he's praising. And that's really how he starts his day. Psalm 100. And he continued to spend much of his time seeking the Lord. And he was deeply satisfied in God. He didn't have selfish ambition. But here in the last chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul, in his fear and antsiness, 
thinks, well, I got to get some like direction here. I got to, there's no priest in Israel anymore. At least they've probably gone into hiding. I would have after he killed all the priests uh, uh, at Nob. And so Saul's like, is, is there a witch? <laughs> and his men are like, yeah, there's a witch. So they take him to this town called Endor and there's a witch there. And, and she's like, oh, well, King Saul has uh, uh, banished like all the witches in the land. It's like he put the death penalty on it or something. And well, Saul's disguised. It's hard for Saul to remain disguised. Remember, Saul was like a head taller than the next tallest guy in the whole country. He, like Goliath, was a, a, a little bit smaller giant, right? He was probably, I don't know, seven feet tall or something in a, in a country where nobody was more than six feet tall, let's say, you know? So, so Saul disguises himself, which didn't last long. And, and he's like, uh, conjure up whoever I'm going to tell you. And the witch uh, is like, okay. And he says, conjure up Samuel. And, and Samuel... Somehow God makes Samuel appear and gives Samuel permission to talk to Saul. Normally, a necromancy is completely forbidden. Well, Samuel tells Saul, like, you're not getting anything from me. And, um, and Saul lies there and fasts, and eventually his men convince him to eat and drink something. And they somehow get out to the battle and and the story goes that Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, were on this um, hilltop, and the, the battle is thick, and the chariots and horses are, are pressing in close on Saul, and the archers find him, and they badly wound him. And having been wounded and knowing he cannot live, and not desiring to be tortured by the Philistines or be this prize of war, you know, like uh, the king of the Amalekites, Saul doesn't want that for himself. By the way, Samuel hacked up the king of the Amalekites, executing God's righteous wrath on a man that was, whose cup of iniquity was full. So not desiring that for himself, he decides to commit suicide. And he tries to, but he's, he's still alive. And he hears somebody behind him, and he's like, hey, who are you? Who is it? It's an Amalekite. There's an Amalekite guy there who happened to be traveling with Israel's army. And he's like, I'm an Amalekite. And he's like, good, kill me. You know, I'm in the throes of death. I'm in, I'm in agony. And he kills him. And he takes off his armlets. And he takes off his crown. And he escapes before the Philistines uh, get there and find Saul and his sons dead on the mountain. And he tears his clothes and traditionally pours the ashes on his head to show his mourning. And he escapes and he finds David. And he's like, you know, I've come from the battle. David asks how it, how it went. And he says, uh, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead and the people fled from the battle and, and I've come here. And David's like, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And he says, I brought you the crown and the armlets from his arms. And David immediately weeps and fasts until evening, he and all his men. And he calls the Amalekite back in after some hours and he says, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed? And it doesn't say whether the guy said anything back. He quickly calls one of his young men to kill the Amalekite. God's judgment was complete. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see that David's heart has not changed. It's still like what he wrote in Psalm 131. David writes this song about Saul and his son Jonathan, his deceased best friend, and in it, 
he doesn't say anything bad about Saul. In fact, he honors Saul greatly. He calls Saul beloved and lovely. The kind of humility that God is after in our hearts will take supernatural help for us to get there and to maintain. And if we don't, if we fall into this deceit that I'm somebody great, I deserve, or if we fall into the deceit that the person God has put in charge, as far as I can tell, like, is wrong, and Saul was very wrong, if we take matters into our own hands, then we will likewise go insane to the point of like a very disturbing kind of insanity if we carry it on to the nth degree. The solution to this is to look not only to David, who was an example, but to Christ. In Psalm 2, um, Paul urges, or Philippians 2, Paul urges uh, the, the little church at Philippi there, you know, look, if you've got any Christianity in you, basically, summarizing the first four verses, um, if you've got any heart for God or fellowship or like any Christian community, anything Christian in you, then make my joy complete. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equalness, didn't consider equalness with God to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. And the idea that God would humble himself is like the ultimate solution to our pride. Who am I? We can say with David, who am I? Who's my family? What good thing have I ever done? Or what have I ever earned, accomplished, or deserved that would make me in any way able to be compared with God? But God humbled himself out of love for us. And it is in the humiliation of Jesus Christ by becoming a man and dying like a wicked man for wicked men and women that we find that we find supernatural help and are unified with him and are able to maintain a kind of humility that David somehow did for most of his life, like in Psalm 131. And it's to passages like Psalm 131 and Philippians 2 that we go time after time again, and we'll need to go there hundreds of times through our lives, like David went to the scriptures and saturated his mind and meditated on these words. And because he did that, God was pleased and God kept him low. And we likewise may remain lowly if we cry out to God for supernatural help. And that's what it will take, nothing less. So with that, let's ask him for it. Oh God, there's nothing good in us. At least most of us you've called from the lowliest of people and families in society. And most of us had a pretty rough start. Um, so we thank you for that. That helps. We see Saul started out low and he just got deceived and he just got full of himself. Please have mercy on this congregation, especially on me and all the congregations of Christians around the world in all the countries right now. 
And we pray the same uh, mercy for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, all of those we disciple, that we would pass on this spirit of lowliness because we have been near you and you have passed on of your own heart to us. So please help us, O God. We desperately need your help. Every day we would be deceived and become full of ourselves if you didn't help us. So we're looking to you because we need you here. And thank you. Amen.